so one thing that was very poorly known among scholars focusing on Japan until quite recently is that there was a general idea that what the Japanese imported were actually coins because they wanted to use coins in trade. But that's kind of odd because if you have a country that has a working system with silk and rice, who would think about importing coins and replacing the whole economy? It turns out that they weren't importing coins. They were importing copper. And the copper was used for other things, so it was melted down. Much of that copper was used in Buddhist temples. So there was a demand in Japan for copper. That's what brought the metal and the coins to Japan. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Lea, and in this episode I talk to Mikael Adolfsson, Keidanlin Professor of Japanese Studies, University of Cambridge in the UK. He is a Fellow and Special Advisor at SCAS during this academic year, 2022-2023. Mikael Adolfsson is a broadly trained historian with a strong interest in medieval societies. He studied medieval religions in southern France at Lund University before suddenly being inspired to switch focus to Japan. He has a wide interest and studies a wide variety of topics, ranging from social structures, ideologies, mentalitia, religious institutions, legal history, historical documents and international trade. In addition, he has a strong interest in how historical narratives have been and are constructed, both in the past and the present. His current project focuses on Sino-Japanese trade in the 12th century, with a special focus on the import of Chinese copper coins, which eventually led to a monetized economy in the 13th and 14th centuries. While at SCAS, he will add a comparative angle to his project by examining the import, use and minting of coins in early medieval Scandinavia. And this is also the topic of this podcast episode, which is the fourth episode in our theme, Asia, Citizen and State Relations. Welcome to SCAS Talks. It's very nice to meet you here in the SCAS studio. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Sure. I am originally Swedish. I grew up in a pretty historical town, Kalmar and the southeast coast of Sweden. We have a castle that dates back to the 12th century where I played as a young child and I was always inspired by my environment. And I think in second grade, I decided I was going to do something with history. Didn't know what it was going to be, but it was going to be history. So I pursued that path and, well, here I am. You have a sort of professional campaign about history that should become more global. One can look at it from different angles, but I think the first thing is to remember that history is very important to the state. It's a subject that forms our identity very much. I mean, you can't go to a national museum without having a history section that describes what the history of the nation was like. And in fact, history was founded as a subject in Germany, of course, in the late 19th century, exactly to promote the idea of what a state should be. So it's a very important subject. The drawback with that is exactly that it tends to be nationally focused. And as a discipline, we would like it to be something that covers the entire globe and so that we can learn about different societies and learn about 
how societies develop in different ways and why. So when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Lund, I was always interested in medieval societies. So that's what I wanted to do and studied medieval France for many, many years and found it interesting, but started to become a little bit frustrated with the lack of attention paid to other regions. So this was in the early 80s. And of course, we had a kind of a Japan boom at the time. So I started reading a little bit about Japan and realized, hmm, there's a very interesting medieval society here. Why don't we learn about this when we study medieval Japan? The personal experience I had with this was not necessarily positive because I went into my advisor and I said, I'm going to switch from you know, medieval France to medieval Japan. And his answer, in short, was Japan doesn't exist. Of course, he didn't mean it doesn't exist as a country. What he meant was it doesn't exist in the discipline of history. And I guess the last thing you should tell someone who's 22 years old is what you can't do, because I decided, okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. But I've been on a kind of crusade ever since to try and introduce Japan into the discipline of history and to, when we discuss medieval societies, whether it's economic developments or governance or class systems or taxation, whatever it might be, then if we are really going to understand these societies, then I think we need to accept that there are other societies that also play a role in these development. In particular for me, we have a lot of historical theories about development in different ways, and they're almost always based on the European experience, and they don't always fit, as we will talk about in a bit, I think, as well. So let's talk about some of your research that can also serve as an example of what you just said. So in your current project, you're addressing the monetization of Japan. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? If we start with Japan, it's kind of a curious case. Japan actually learned about the minting of coins already back in the 8th century, and they did mint their own coins. And that was based on the model of the Tang China. Tang was a centralized imperial state. Japan was creating its own imperial state. And so they basically copied almost everything. Not everything, but almost everything. And one of the things that they copied was to make copper coins to pay their officials or to finance the construction of temples and so forth. That minting lasted for close to two centuries, but in reality, it kind of got less and less over time, and regular people weren't using coins. So by the 10th century, taxes, rents, transactions were paid with mainly rice and silk. Other products were used as well, but it basically turns into a kind of a money economy based on certain products, and products that don't usually last forever either. I mean, rice, of course, has an end date, so to speak. So for 200 years, that's how taxation works in Japan. And then very suddenly in the mid-12th century, we see a record that coins, Chinese coins, have appeared in Japan. And they're being donated to a temple. They're being used to buy a piece of land. Within a very short time, those Chinese coins increase in number. By the 13th century, taxes are determined in coins. The value of land is determining coins. If you are punished for something, you're finding coins. And when we get to coins being used as a unit, we usually say the economy has been monetized. What's very unusual about the Japanese case is that this is done entirely with Chinese coins. They don't mint a single coin of their own. 
and they continued to use these coins until the mid-16th century. So for almost 400 years, we have a monetized economy, but with a basically foreign currency that is used in Japan. That is very uncommon. When I describe that situation to colleagues here in Sweden, they shake their head because they say, well, who guarantees the value of these coins? Who guarantees that they will be able to use them? And I said, well, nobody. I said, well, that doesn't work. It doesn't work with European economic theories. So one could have left it at that, but I thought that, well, how about we actually make a comparison between maybe a similar setup somewhere in Europe and then see why there are differences and where those differences come from. And after having done some reading, I realized that it was basically my home area. Scandinavia was actually the closest case. And so what happens in Scandinavia is that, as you know, the Vikings, they traded, they plundered, did different things. And the one thing that they wanted to import more than anything else was silver. And much of that silver came in the shape of coins, just like in Japan. So this starts in the 8th century, goes on into the 10th century. But by the 10th century, they decide to mint their own coins. And so you get a monetized economy in Scandinavia. It lags behind a little bit. Denmark is the kind of the the earliest country to develop. It lags behind a little bit in Sweden and Norway. But by and large, by the 11th, 12th centuries, you have a monetized economy. But that doesn't happen in Japan. And so my idea was to compare these two situations and see what can we learn from the Scandinavian case that can help us inform Japan and how can we look at Japan and have their case inform us on how those medieval economic developments can take place. So that's where I started. Interesting. So what have you found so far? So one thing that was very poorly known among scholars focusing on Japan until quite recently is that there was a general idea that what Japanese imported were actually coins because they wanted to use coins in trade. But that's kind of odd because if you have a country that has a working system with silk and rice, who would think about importing coins and replacing the whole economy? It turns out that they weren't importing coins, they were importing copper. And the copper was used for other things, so it was melted down. Much of that copper was used in Buddhist temples. So there was a demand in Japan for copper. That's what brought the metal and the coins to Japan. And because Japan has something that China wanted, it happened to be sulfur in this particular case, there was a kind of a trade that went on, and huge amounts of copper coins were imported to Japan. And once the coins were there, then not all of them were melted down, mostly almost by coincidence they start to be used as a currency in different trade and different exchanges. So it's pretty much a coincidence that the coins are being used as coins because the imported first as metal. Well, Scandinavia is exactly the same thing. They're not looking to monetize their economy. They're looking to get silver because they know that they can trade with silver. So this is what the Vikings go after. And if they go east, they trade fur slaves for these coins. If they go west, yeah, maybe sometimes it's Danegelt, you know, this kind of bribe that the English would pay to the Vikings. And some of those silver coins come back. So there we have a perfect match. It's exactly the same thing. It's the metal thereafter. But the difference again is that very soon the Scandinavian countries, they start to mint their own coins, whereas Japan doesn't do that. 
So then the two remaining big questions are really, how can you do that without a kind of agent, a government that vouches for its value? And what's very typical in Scandinavia is that the coins do not get minted until you have a fairly centralized kingdom. That's when they can do it. Or you have a structure that's fairly vertical, so you can do that. In Japan, you actually have a much older kingdom, in fact, that has been there for longer. But the big difference is that we don't have a clear authority at the top. We have a kind of divided authority. The emperor is a symbol, and then we have three different blocks there who are in power. So it's nobles, religious institutions, and warriors. And neither of these have the authority to really make their own minting. So we see that the political structure is different. And so that's part of the answer. What is perhaps most interesting for me is where this puts us when it comes to agency. We talk a lot about agency these days in history. And it's very clear that the rulers in Western Europe and in Scandinavia, they are the agents behind this minting. It's really a state-driven minting. In Japan, however, it's a very different situation. The ones who are bringing the coins in are traders because they see potential for profit. And the ones who are wanting to use it are also traders. So we have an agency that are a much, much lower level. And so this kind of complicates the picture a little bit. It's not just the warriors or the temples or the aristocrats who can determine the direction of the economy. But we actually have here traders who play a very substantial role in developing this economy. And I think there are two groups there the ones who bring the coins in, and the ones who are promoting it internally. The ones who bring the coins in are, interestingly, not Japanese, the Chinese traders. So there are Chinese traders who are going from China to Japan, and they see a demand in Japan for copper, and they are the ones who start with. So there we get a completely different agency. And then on the Japan side, once the coins are there, then people start using it. And again, it's not the imperial court that decides to use these coins. In fact, they try to prohibit it at first, and it's still being used. So again, there are kind of the middle class or lower classes who are pushing the use. And that, again, complicates the picture on how these monetizations happen. Here, the monetization in Japan, it happens because there is a demand to do it, and that demand is driven by traders and I mean, lower-class landholders who are seeing that this is more efficient. So there's a big difference there in how society progresses towards in a certain direction, and that complicates the picture we have of medieval societies, I think. So in Japan, it's more of a bottom-up principle almost? Politically speaking, absolutely not. It's very much top-down, right? I mean, it's very hierarchical, but I like to think of Japan as being more inclusive as a society. It's very much vertically structured, but everybody, regardless if you're far away from the elite level, you're connected in some sense through your estate and through a local shrine or local temple and then to a local or to an elite family. So you're connected all the way up. So there is a way to function within the prevailing structures. In Europe, my sense is that it's, it's more exclusive, Right? I mean, you have a ruling family, and they try to control as much as they can. And if you're not part of the ruling family, you're basically kind of outside. If you manage to overturn the ruling family, then you replace it. In Japan, you don't do that. In Japan, if someone comes to power, 
they do that within the framework rather than changing it. So I think it's the inclusivity that makes it possible for these traders, merchants, to actually trade, sell things to the nobility, for example. And the nobility said, well, hmm, this is actually working, so maybe I should be using this as well, rather than asking for rice or other things. So again, agency becomes very different in that sense of society. And I'm, my sense is that the inclusivity plays a big role in that. That's interesting. Since this is an episode within our theme, Asia, Citizen and State Relations, I can just ask you, how did monetization affect the relation between citizens and the state, or is there a connection at all? I would rather say that I think the state structure affects how the monetization comes around rather than the other way around. And again, this has to do with the governance structure. But again, we do see, for example, new groups emerge as a result of increased monetization. So to some extent, even though I I talk about inclusivity, we do actually get guilds in Japan by the 13th and 14th century, which are not too dissimilar from the guilds in Europe, actually. And they manage to get a little bit more independent from these structures, and they do that because of the ability to trade with coins. So in that sense, it does change the relationship, in fact, between what I would call the state actors and the agents of the monetization, in that they get a little bit more kind of semi-independent from these elites that normally they would act underneath. And that happens from the 13th and 14th century as so on. And it's actually quite clear so that by the 15th century, we find some groups are even challenging the elites. And, you know, without this kind of release of economic resources, I don't think that would have been possible. So there is a connection in that sense. Money makes the world go wrong. Yeah, that's indeed it does. Even in 12th and 13th century Japan. This whole topic of um, both medieval Japan in general, but also now monetization that you're looking at, why is that so fascinating? And in which way can this also be an example for the importance of global history that you talked about in the beginning? So as I've alluded to before, the idea of minting goes closely together with commercialization. So in Europe, they talk about the commercial revolution from 1160s until the 1320s. And this is because we get more circulation of money, they find silver mines, trade takes off, there is more networks going on. Of course, we have the famous Hansa League, for example, that emerges during this time and becoming incredibly powerful and important in connecting different states. And so on the one hand, I mean, that emerges from that scenario. And then, of course, in Japan, it's similar in a sense. And yet the incentive comes from a different perspective. And because we have these monetary theories on how this monetization comes around, a theory has to be global for it to work. There has to be universal. And as I said before, most of the theories that we have in history, they're based on a very narrow sample, in fact, of experiences, mostly from Europe, not always, but mostly from Europe. And so if these theories are going to work and really be of value to the discipline of history, then they do need to be universal. They can't just be European theories applied for Europe because then we're kind of in a relativist uh, discipline. It's like, well, in Europe it works this way, in Japan it works that way, in Africa it works this way, and then what's the point of theories? So in my view, it's really important that the theory is universal and therefore we need to take into account 
the whole spectrum of global societies if we have an idea on how societies develop and it's a general theory and that could be you know industrialization or anything i happen to be medievalist so i'm mostly interested in how medieval economies develop and so i'm hoping that by introducing japan into the european context of historical research that we can adjust the historical theories that we have and maybe open it up so it can be applied to different societies across but i i really think it's important not just for the relevance of japanese studies but also for the survival of japanese studies because if you can't make it relevant to people in your own discipline then it's really hard to say well we need global history so i think it's upon us to actually make that pitch and to be successful in marketing that and it starts with training if students come to me and say well i want to work on the samurai which of course is very common or i want to work on the warring states period i say well what are you teaching people outside japanese studies so then we have to think about that and there are a number of debates that one can engage in we have the age old debate about feudalism for example that unfortunately still goes on i'm an anti feudalist i don't think it works in europe i don't think it works in japan but it's a debate that one can engage in and see why are we seeing japan as being similar to europe in that way and how can we engage in a dialogue with someone who works in medieval france or medieval england or whatever it might be sure people often say that you work on complex questions and that you will have complex answers so i get the vibe here also that you're looking for the complex questions the question can be straightforward i guess but there's another aspect of that that i actually think is quite interesting again i'm a pre-modernist which in my world means pre 1600 but it could also just be pre 1868 or whatever you look at and of course in the discipline of history there's also a big trend to favor modern history because modern history is supposed to be maybe more relevant and also maybe more refined in a way because it's more complex right we have interstate action we have different classes it sounds very complicated and the further back you go in time the less complicated it seems to get right but that's actually not true pre-modern societies are incredibly complex so what i'm trying to do i'm trying to go beyond the oversimplifications of the pre-modern passive no so one example of this is the fact that these traders who nobody has paid attention to especially the chinese traders in japan that they actually played a huge role in determining japan's economic development but that doesn't fit into a simple narrative of samurai being in charge and you know all these images of samurai and battles and stuff like that it doesn't fit in so in a sense my role is to kind of make japan's pre-modern past actually more complex because it is more complex now the second aspect of that before i forget is also why is the pre-modern past relevant and that's another question that i often have to deal with as i said there is a certain prejudice against the pre-modern there some institutions they they do teach japanese history but it's only modern it's not the pre-modern and i think that's a big mistake because the pre-modern past as when we discussed you know the how history came about as being part of a national narrative plays a huge role in the national narrative you know you go to any museum in japan i mean you won't see a whole lot about the 19th and 20th century what you will see is of course a lot of samurai armor samurai swords and stuff like that and that's part of 
a national narrative. And if we don't take that apart, deconstruct that, and understand how they have kind of adjusted this image of the samurai to fit into a modern demand for what they want the nation to be, you will never be able to understand the rhetoric and the narrative that is being pushed by the nation. And I don't think it's very different in other countries. I mean, we have Viking narratives here in Scandinavia and TV series Vikings, you know, very popular, lots of blood. How much trade we do see? Almost nothing. But if you read what scholars are saying, you know, many of these Vikings were far more traders than these plundering warriors, right? And that's because it fits into the romantic nationalist narrative of Sweden, right? And I think that's the case in every country you go to. It doesn't matter where it is. In America, maybe it's the cowboys and what they were doing. And I mean, obviously in France and England, it's the knights and stuff like that. So they all fit into kind of a glorification of of its own past. And you can't deconstruct it if you don't have access to the different ways we we look at the pre-modern past. I think it's extremely important from that perspective as well. You are listening to SCUS Talks and the fourth episode on our theme Asia, Citizen and State Relations, featuring the research of Mikael Adolfsson. In the previous episodes within this theme, we have heard Shalini Randeria about citizen and state relations in India through the lens of displacement, Barak Kushner on what war crime trials in East Asia tell us about the history of justice, and Michael Pewitt on rethinking the world by considering Chinese history. These are episodes 30, 28 and 24, if you want to listen. But now... Back to Mikael Adolfsson and the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. So you're currently a fellow and also a special advisor here at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. So first of all, what is your experience as a fellow in this multi- and interdisciplinary research environment? To me, it's a truly unique environment. I mean, I can see similarities with other places, but... I can only say that it's a tremendous privilege to be here. Just besides being able to focus on your research and you know, not to have to deal with a lot of other things, administration and so forth, that you're often burdened with. But it's also supportive for, you know, if you need to, let's say, have a, a little workshop, then you can get help to do that. When I came here, I had an idea what I wanted to do. And I didn't know a single scholar in Scandinavia, as you say, I had read quite a bit of medieval economies, but I wasn't aware where the research was, especially in Sweden. So very shortly after I arrived here, I was first introduced to the curator of the coin cabinet here in Uppsala, who was extremely kind. And he in turn introduced me to the classics and archaeology department at Stockholm, where they have a kind of a numismatic group. And that's where I met like the people who are doing research on things that are very similar to what I'm doing, but in Scandinavia. And I have gotten so many articles from them and so much information. And I would never have been able to do that if I didn't actually come here, because I wouldn't have found a way to do that. So the ability to take advantage of the kind of the scholarly environment in Sweden is tremendous. And then, of course, there's the other aspect, and that's 
when we write our books, I think one question we always have to ask ourselves is, who is the audience? Who are we writing for? As I said before, I don't want to write for Japanologists. I want to write for historians, people have an interest in different topics in history. And in order to do so, you need to know how to communicate with such people. And so to be in an environment where you have other scholars, but none of whom is an expert on my field, that helps me pitch my own narrative as like, okay, this is how I explain that, so this makes sense. And this is where I think actually the weekly seminars we have play such a big role, because that really is a kind of a litmus test. This is a test. Can I present this in a way that we can have a dialogue and everybody really gets my point? Do they agree that it's important? And if I fail, how do I say this in a different way so that it becomes more effective, right? To me, that's a tremendous benefit. And then, of course, there are always informal conversations going on about life in academe, scholarship approaches. And I think that it depends a little bit on how senior you are. I've been in the field for quite a long time now, so maybe I share more than I, I learn from my colleagues. But I think that's the whole purpose of SCUS, because we are such a mixed group, and we have everything from scholars just starting out to those who have been around for a long time, and I like that mix. We could, for example, if someone is sending in a book proposal or something, right? So it's very common that someone else reads it here within SCUS and provides feedback on it, or someone is writing an article, and there may be others who are here who are kind of close but not too close to the field, right? So that's another advantage. I mean, if you're at a university in America somewhere, you don't meet anyone outside your own department. So who are you going to ask? So I think this is, this is really unique in that sense. You're also a special advisor here. Our principal, Christina, has worked very hard as the principal here. And so last year, because I had a two-year sabbatical, I thought it would be nice if I could stay one more year in, in Sweden. So she had had something in mind for a while. And I said, well, I have the perfect role for you. And that was to help her develop a few things. So there are a couple of things I'm focusing right, right now on. One is to help refine various processes within SCUS. We get a lot of applications. We need to make sure that the assessment of those applications is fair. And there are obviously different ways one can do that. So we're looking into that and trying to kind of make sure that everybody gets assessed by someone who has, you know, enough expertise in that field. And we also want to do that, keeping in mind that we want to have a little bit of affirmative action, in a sense, that we're overrepresented from the, I would say, Anglo-European part of the world, which means that especially the global south, Asia is pretty underrepresented. And so we want to make efforts to try both get more applications, but also to ensure that we have some variety in the type of scholars who are coming. Another aspect that I'm working on, and I have to say I really, really enjoy this part, the Profitura program. It is, I think, fairly unique. So this is a program where young scholars who have or will get a position, mainly in Sweden, but in Scandinavia as well, basically get a five-year fellowship. During that time, they will spend one year here normally, and then a year or so abroad at a different institution, and then they will keep coming back during that, those five years. 
what's really interesting to me about this is that we have basically now workshops twice a year. And this gives me the opportunity to do something that I wish I had experienced and I wish that I, I would have been able to do for other colleagues as well. And that's to have a discussion with these Profortura scholars about what are the expectations of being an academic at your university? How does the governance system works? What are our challenges as academics? What is the guiding light in, in academia? To me, it's always been integrity, right? That we produce scholarship that is firmly based on the evidence that we have found, but also that we have integrity when it comes to different kinds of selection processes within the university, when colleagues are being selected or elected to different posts. And so we've had a number of sessions already where we you know, have workshops on this. And it's been very, very interesting to me. I mean, both to the extent that they all already are aware of these different things, but also to the extent that maybe some things they haven't thought so much about. And since I've been in academia now for quite a few years, it kind of gives me the opportunity to share some experiences. And we come up with what I think are fairly fascinating topics. I've given them homework for the first time. So they have to go and, and check out how their own institutions work in terms of governance and not just the structure, but also the processes. I've always been interested in this, and I've noticed there are actually big differences between different institutions at least in North America, but also in the UK. I'm expecting there are fewer differences here in, in Sweden because it's guided by basically national laws. But having said that, I still think that there will be something that we can discuss. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that tremendously. It sounds really exciting. We had so much fun in the discussions and I walk around and listen to them and they don't get animated, but not everybody agrees. And then, of course, we try to have some kind of general discussion based on what the different groups have done afterwards. And the point is not to kind of say, this is the right answer, but rather think about these things. Where do you stand? What are the principles that you want to follow in the future? Because I do think it matters to the academic community also. If there is a small contribution I can make there, then that's fabulous. So I'm very happy with that. Thanks a lot for coming here and joining me and our listeners on SCAS Talks. I enjoyed chatting with you, first of all. I think this has been, been great. And I want to thank you for the opportunity. It's been great fun. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In this episode, I have talked to Mikael Adolfsson, Kedandrin Professor of Japanese Studies, University of Cambridge in the UK. We have talked about some of his research on the monetization in Japan and how studies on Asia can challenge our perception of global history. This was the fourth episode within the theme Asia, Citizen and State Relations. The list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing, reflecting the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and went on to also feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures and finally Asia, citizen and state relations. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. 
find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something that is completely new. And a new theme is soon coming up. Diplomacy and international relations. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCUS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. SCUS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Mikael Adolfsson once again for talking to me and thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.